0: Pesach is the birth of a nation, the birth of the Jewish people, and the question that arises when we talk about the Jewish people is, was the Jewish people necessary a necessary precursor to their being the Jewish person, or is having the Jewish person the necessary precursor to having the Jewish people? It's a bit philosophical, but the question is, which is the primary identity? Is there a nation or a peoplehood called the Jews, and then the individuals who make up or are members or who belong to that people are Jewish? Or are there Jewish individuals and they come together and they make up this whole called the Jewish nation? You know the story about the, uh, the couple who had a uh, Shalom bias issue and they came to the rabbi and the wife said all of her complaints. And the rabbi listened, he heard her out, he says, You're right. The husband says, "Hey, what about me? What about my side?" The the, the rabbi said, "Go ahead, say your side." The husband said his side, and the rabbi listened and he heard him out and he said, "You're right." The rabbi's own wife was walking by the rabbi's and she overheard this and she kind of stuck her head in the room. She said, "How could they both be right?" And the rabbi said to her, "You're right." It's, it's a joke, but it's, it's, it's not a joke. Right? Like they say, every truth has a little bit of a joke. Um, they can both be true. So, is the primary Jewish identity the Jewish nation that's composed of individuals, or is the primary Jewish in- identity the Jewish individual who makes up this collective called the Jewish nation? And the answer is yes. Like many things in Torah, or perhaps all things in Torah, it's a paradox. The answer is yes, you're both right. And this paradox was present from the moment that Jewish identity came into being. When did Jewish identity begin? In Egypt, when we were given our first commandment. What was our first commandment? So you're going to say, Hazel the uh, lunar calendar. It was a Pesach? But it was actually Korban Pesach, actually. Or at least the way the Kli Yakar explains it, that really the first mitzvah was Korban Pesach, and the mitzvah of the lunar calendar, which was given on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, that was actually just a precursor to be able to bring the Korban Pesach on the correct date. So we were given the calendar in order to have a date in which to do the first mitzvah, which was the Korban Pesach. So the definitive first mitzvah, the first action that defined us as Jews, was Korban Pesach. Now, when we talk about korbonis, when we talk about offerings, there are many, many different types of offerings, and this is not the time or the place to get into a whole lesson about that, but if we're going to be just very general, there are two general types of offerings. There's something called a korbin yochid, and there's something called a korbin tzibur, an individual offering and a communal offering. What's an example of an individual offering? Let's say a korbin tzibur, a thanksgiving offering. I have something to give thanks for, I go and I bring my individual korben toida, my thanksgiving offering. Or let's say a korben chatas, a sin offering. I did the Veda I need to clean it up, I go and I bring my sin offering. Then you have communal offerings. What's a communal offering? Well, a good example would be every day you have tmidim, you have the tomid in the morning, you have the tomid in the afternoon, and these were done collectively. This was not any individual who brought that korban. This was brought on behalf of the entire nation. It was actually purchased with communal funds. And um, that's a korban Sibr. Another example of a korban Sibr would be uh, the musaf. that was brought on Shabbos and on Rosh or on a Yom Generally speaking, the difference is like this. A korban sibur, has a specific time; it's linked to a time. So, like the Tomid is perpetually brought every day, or a musaf is brought. There's a musaf for Rosh Chodesh. There's a musaf for for Yom Tov. The korban Yochid doesn't have a specific time. It ha- it, it, it comes from us from a situation that a person is in a particular situation where he has to bring this uh, individual offering. Okay, what's the Halachic ramification here, at least the one that's pertinent to our discussion. A korban sibur can and actually must be brought on Shabbos, meaning the malacha, the labor involved in the offering, supersedes the Shabbos prohibitions. A korban yochid, an individual's offering, does not supersede. Shabbos. So, if you, as an individual, want to bring achatas, a toida, come back Sunday. Don't come Shabbos. Well, you don't have to do it today. Do it tomorrow. But for instance, I mean, this is this is a a no-brainer. But the musaf of Shabbos would obviously be brought on Shabbos. In fact, you couldn't even make it up. over Ya, bottle carbone. If you miss the day, there's no way to make it up. Okay. How did Hillel become the nasi? Hillel was sort of a newcomer. Hillel came from Babylonia. How did Hillel become the nasi? There was a raging debate. When Erev Pesach fell out on Shabbos, and there was a discussion about whether the Korban Pesach would push off Shabbos or not. And the Nisiyim, the leaders of the Jewish court and the Jewish people at that time were the Bnei Besedo, the brothers of Besedo. And they could not come to a definitive ruling. And they were actually, they were looking for someone who had a Mesutah, who had a tradition. And Hillel showed up. And he had learned from Shmaya Vav And he was able to clarify. What was Hillel able to clarify? Hillel was able to clarify that, yes, the Korban Pesach should be brought. What was the lack of clarity? that the others had, and what was the clarity that Hillel had? Very simple. Is Korban Pesach a Korban Yochid or a Korban Sivir? An individual offering or a communal offering? There's something to be said for both arguments. Is it an individual offering? Well, in a lot of ways, yes. Everyone has to do it. In fact, you have to buy in, you have to participate each lamb is reserved by Nuyim, people who are counted in, who are registered. You have to be registered. And uh, each group is made up of individuals, and each person has, a, has an obligation to partake. So in that sense, it seems very much like a korban yachid, like an individual offering. On the other hand, it's done universally by everyone at the same time. There's a date for it, of Pesach. Also, it's done in the same way. Everybody does, the, the Korban Pesach has a certain way that it's done. Roasted, bent over. In that sense, it's very much like a Korban Sibur. If it would be a Korban Sibur, then yes, it would push off Shabbos. If it wouldn't be a Korban Tzibur, if it be a Korban Yochid, it would not push off Shabbos. So what are we to do? Came Hillel and said... The following: the korban pesach is both a korban sibur and a korban yachid, and its korban sibur aspect is what makes it brought on the shabbos. And in fact, Hillel's very famous three questions. One reading of Hillel's three questions is this problem in riddle form. You know Hillel's famous three questions? Im ein mili, if I am not for myself, who will be? If I'm only for myself, then what am I? In riddle form, that's actually this problem and solution. The Koran Pesach itself is speaking. anili If I'm not for myself, who will be? In other words, each individual has an obligation to bring the korban Pesach. If I don't bring my korban Pesach, who brings it? It's very much a korban yachid. On the other hand, shein If it's only my sacrifice... Then what is it? It's clearly something that's done communally or universally by all Jews, same time, same observance. And therefore, it is that aspect of korban Sibur that leads to the question and answer, im if not now, meaning on the day of of Pesach, even though it's Shabbos, Emoset, what do you want to do it? You can't push it off. korban Sibur is done whenever it has to be done. And it pushes off the restrictions of Shabbos. So right there, Right there, we are introduced to the essence of Jewish identity. The essence of Jewish identity is a paradox. It is both individual and communal simultaneously. We know throughout history there are societies that are collectivist and societies that are individualist and each one sort of has its pros and cons. A collectivist society is one where there's strength in numbers. Everybody is pulling for a single vision. And there's obviously a a, a certain power that when you get everybody together, everybody's pulling in the same direction There's an obvious advantage to that. On the other hand, extreme collectivism, for instance, like Marxism, where the role of the individual is denigrated, where where the individual is described as completely replaceable. People are replaceable. All that matters from the individual is their capacity to sacrifice themselves for the whole. That's extreme collectivism, and it's it, it debasing, it's dehumanizing. Then you have societies that are individualistic, the, 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 the advantages are clear. Personal freedom, personal liberty is, is, is promoted in a society that's individualistic. But what's the drawback? Well, one drawback is, you, is that every, every, every man for himself, right, sort of everybody has their own agenda. That's clear. One of the less obvious problems of the extreme individualistic society, and I would say America in 2018 might be a prime example of that, is isolation. People go to work and they're lonely. They come home and they're lonely. Somebody once said, if you want to call a family meeting, go to the room where the router is plugged in and pull out the power and just wait a minute, you'll have a family meeting. the individualistic society has its drawbacks. Isolation of people, separateness of people. One time, the, the, the Frida Kerebe, the sixth Lubavitch Kerebe, was on a, a train, and as you probably know, if you even know a little bit about the his biography, Is that he was branded public enemy number one of the Communist Revolution. He was uh, an enemy of the state, an enemy of the revolution. And uh, he was almost sentenced to uh, a capital sentence by the Communists. He narrowly, narrowly escaped with his life. There were once two intellectuals talking and two Jews, intellectuals, and they were talking about which system is closer to Torah, communism or capitalism? And they asked the previous Rebbe, and he said, well, you know, the idea that Hashem will bless you in all that you do, that's like capitalism. The idea, and it's actually from the same sokim in Ta in, in, um, that there shall be no poor in the land that's similar to communism he says so the truth is that everything that's true in every and it's interesting you know this is somebody who was persecuted by communism and yet he said look there's a certain amount of truth that's in every system but that truth, comes from Torah. Or like Winston Churchill said, that democracy is the worst form of government devised by, by man until you compare it with all the others that have ever been invented. And he's probably right. The, 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 when it comes to man-made systems, democracy is the best of the worst. They're all worse. They're all bad. They're all flawed because they're, they're, they're man-made. But Torah being divine and being the source of the truth that's in present, the, the truth that is present in all political systems and all economic systems originates from Torah. And Torah actually transcends all of these categories and all these these divisions. Is Torah liberal or is Torah conservative? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it, it is. It is very much. Which one? <laughs> You cannot confine Torah to what is called liberal or what is called conservative in America in 2018 or in any country at any time. Torah transcends these, these categories. So is, is Torah collectivist or individualist? Yes, yes, it's both. And from the very moment of our inception, from the first moment of Jewish identity, when we first got a mitzvah, the first mitzvah was both a korban Yochid and a korban Tzibber simultaneously, transcending quality, the, the categorization. So Jewish identity, is Jewish identity that the sum is greater than the, what do you call it, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? The collectivist idea. Yeah, I can definitely see that. You know one of the ideas why we dip apples in honey on Rosh Hashanah? One of the beautiful explanations is that a worker bee creates a teaspoon and a half of honey in his entire lifetime. So when you look at a bowl of honey, you're looking at the work of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of bees, the life's work, not a season, a lifetime. You're looking at generations. So in Rosh Hashanah, when we're being judged, we say, Hashem, don't look at me as an individual. Look at the intergenerational... Accomplishment. Look at the vast timeline of history. The Jewish people, we, you know, we did some good stuff. Don't single me out. Look at me like a worker bee that contributed my tiny little teaspoon and a half to this beautiful bowl of delicious honey that's called the Jewish contribution to serving God. Okay. So, on one hand, we're very much into this collectivism. On the other hand, I mean, how were the Jewish people counted in the, the census, in the, in, the, in the wilderness, in the midbar, the, the, the half-shekel census. The whole idea is each one counted separately. Each one counted. That's why, by the way, the name, there's a whole book from the five books of Moses. The second of the, the, the five books is called Shmuz, which means names. The beginning of uh, of Shmois says these are the names, children of Israel. Um, And Rashi there comments and says that it's out of Hashem's love for the Jewish people that he counts them again. What was it? Counts? Hold on, is it names? Or is it numbers? It's both. See, your name is your individual identity. A number, if you just a number, like. Prison. One of the things that previous ever wrote about in his, he wrote a journal about his imprisonment, and he said that when they, anyone here speaks Russian? No. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a word, garlic. Hmm. How, how would you translate it? In English? <laughs> Yarlik. When he came, to, yeah, when he came to prison, they told him, you are Yarlik 26818. Oh, Yarlik. Yarlik. Oh. <laughs> okay, what's a Yarlik? Yarlik is a label. A label. So when the previous Islamic came to prison, they told, you're not, you don't have a name anymore, you're Yalik 26818, a label. Like, you go to a grocery store, and it has UPC symbol on it, and you scan it, boop, and it just has a, that's dehumanizing. In the Holocaust, they were reduced to numbers, that's correct, and the number tattooed on their arm became their identity, that's right. On the other hand, wait, hold on, but on the other hand, on the other hand, everyone wants to count. I want to count. One man, one vote. I want to have the same value as the next guy. Ah, so there is something to being a number. There's, there's pros and cons to both. Yesh Bezeh, Masha'im Bezeh, there's one, each one has something the other doesn't have. So I want to be a name, I want to be an individual, I want to have my identity. On the other hand, I want to be a number. I want to count, just like everybody else. I want to just be no more, no less. So collectivism and individualism run through, in this, this sort of paradoxical way, the very core of Jewish identity. And this begins from our very first act as Jews, the Korban Pesach. It's neither an individual offering nor a communal offering, and it's both. There's a story that's told about um, Reb Melech of Leszhensk, that he once went wandering in self-imposed exile for a couple of years. And after, and he, it was in order to refine himself. He undertook a certain um, self-refining. Um, you know, the, it was a, it was a, it was an idea of of exiling himself in order to undergo certain hardships that it should refine him. At any rate, the, the purpose was it was supposed to be spiritually cleansing. At the end of the period of wandering, which was about two years, he came back home, and as he's entering his hometown, an acquaintance says to him, oh, no, you probably haven't heard. You come back in town, you haven't been in town for two years, there's no email, there's no phones. Oh, you haven't heard. What? Your son, Lazerke, is very sick. So of course he was distraught, and he picked up the pace, and he ran home, and he came in the door. And he hasn't seen his wife in two years, but the first thing he says is, what's wrong with laser kit? And his wife says, nothing, nothing. He says, no, no, tell me, tell me straight. What's wrong with laser kit? She says, nothing. Thank God. He's fine. He's in cheder. (laughs) Nebeli Melech says, but as I entered town, somebody said, oh, you probably don't know about laser kit. And his wife says, oh, yes, unfortunately, there's another Eliezer, another laser kit, um, a child from another family who's not well right now, and that neighbor must have misunderstood and thought it was our child. And Rebbe Elimelech said to his wife, with your permission, I'm going back into exile. Because if I felt relief when I realized it wasn't our child, that moment of relief that I felt, then I've gained nothing from my two years of self-imposed exile. So. You know, this idea that no man is an island. You know, you can't just be for yourself. This is a basic concept. You know, they say, what's the difference between the ill and the well? I and we. I-L-L, W-E-L-L, right? They're the same word, but there's I and there's we. So ill is I, well is we. You can't just be for yourself. And, and the idea, not just, it's not nice to just be for yourself. You can't be a healthy individual if you're only for yourself. Right? ain't anilimili, fine, but Allah elolotz me if I'm only for myself. In other words, it doesn't just mean you gotta balance out. You gotta be a little for yourself and a little for the community. What it means is a healthy self. A healthy ego is one that is nullified to something greater than itself. I'll give you a perfect illustration. There was a young rabbi. This is in the 1950s. YU you trained? He had smicha from Rabbi Ber Soloveitchik. The name of this young man was Reb Nachman Bernard. He went for five years to Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas. Okay, that's a uh, talk about being in exile. And after those five years, when his children were getting older, they needed Hinoch, He came back to New York, and he was going to sit in kollel, and he was going to learn. His Rav, who had given him ordination, Rabbi Soloveitchik, told him that he was approached by the Oxford Synagogue, that was the name of it, still is the name of it, in Johannesburg. Now, you have to understand, Johannesburg, South Africa, in the 50s, was about as, as far as Jewish infrastructure was about as thriving as Wichita, Kansas. Actually, in some ways, you might say worse, because it had a lot more Jews, but just as little Jewish community. And this synagogue wanted a rabbi, and they contacted Rabbi Soloveitchik, and he recommended for them two possible candidates, the two Normans. Norman Lamb and Norman Bernhardt. Norman Lamb was smart. They asked him and he said he's working on his Ph.D. He's not available. They asked Norman Bernhardt and he asked the Rav, he asked Rabbi Soloveitchik what he should do and Rabbi Soloveitchik told him this kind of question you should go to Labavitcher Rebbe. Yeah. So Rabbi Bernard went to the Rebbe. And he explained, I did five years, you know, I did my time. I did five years in Wichita, right? Okay. Now I want to sit in Koylo in a normal place in New York, in a normal community where my kids have chinuch, and I want to learn Torah." And the Rebbe told him that there is a fire burning, there is a crisis in the Jewish world, crisis of assimilation, and anyone who has the ability to fight must fight. Everybody is, you know, universal military conscription. Everybody is drafted. You can't, there's no uh, ptura, there's no uh, exemption. And Rabbi Bernhard said, you know, some cipher Referred to the Qsam Soifer. He says, the Qsam Soifer was worried that his involvement in communal matters was going to cause his own children to suffer. In other words, rabbi Bernhard brought up the example of the Qsam Seifer as like an argument that there is such a notion that a rabbi has to also think of his, his own family. But then he kept talking, and he and he continued. He says, and you know that the other Deleador, the, his colleagues of the time, the Sam Seifer's colleagues, they told him that in the merit of his communal work, his own kids are going to be okay. And then he realized that he had just defeated his own argument. <laughs> and so, so then he said, Aber ich bin nicht der But I'm not the Hsam Seifer. You can't compare me. You can't put me in that. You can't include me in his ilk. That's another category. He said, the rabbi became very stern. He said, Nein, das nicht nur dem jeder It's not just the Chsam Seifer. Every Jew has that merit, or at least can have that merit, that if he'll give himself to the community, it'll be good for him too. So then, so what, what, he's, he's still trying to get out of it. So Rabbi Bernhard started quoting. Verses. That's what, you, you know, you're in, a, you're in a bind, you start quoting biblical verses. So he pulled out a Shir HaShirim, a little uh, song of songs. And he said, there's an ironic line there, Samuni um, netere they appointed me the guardian of the vineyard, v'eskarmi shali but my own vineyard I did not guard. So he quoted that verse. Like, I'm supposed to be the guardian of the vineyard, I'm supposed to take care of the community, but I'm not taking care of my own family. I'm going to move to some crazy place where there's no education for my children. And the Rebbe told him, This is your vineyard. What do you think your vineyard is? This is your vineyard. What was the Rebbe telling you? You want it. You want to be responsible as an individual, as a head of a household, as a, as a father of children. The best way to take care of yourself, your vineyard, is throw yourself into taking care of others. Ot this is your vineyard. Take care of the tzibur, take care of the community, and you'll be a healthy individual. And that's what happened, and as crazy as it was, as absolutely crazy as it was, he moved to Johannesburg, and it is much to Bernhard's credit that it's hard for us to imagine that Topeka and Johannesburg could be <laughs> compared at one, at one time, but through decades of work, he built it up, and uh, I mean, I've been to Johannesburg. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible place, with Torah institutions, with schools and restaurants, and but that, when, he, when he moved there, he started his first nursery school in the garage of their home with two students, two, maybe three students. So the health of the individual, it's not just that it's not nice to only be into self. It's counterproductive to only be into yourself. To be a healthy individual, you have to put your own interests on the side and and be there for the community. A healthy individual is an individual that puts aside his or her own interests and is concerned with the community. And that is your healthiest way and and most direct way to ultimately achieving your own fulfillment. Okay. What's the other side of the coin? What's the other side of this equation? Again, I want to repeat this so that it's understood. It's not just that an individual would be not nice to only care about himself or herself. It's that the individual only thrives, the individual is only truly alive when he or she lives for a purpose greater than self. To be a healthy individual, you have to care about the community. Okay. What's the flip side of that coin? If you just flip the whole thing. You have to find a good balance. What's a healthy community? No, there's no balance. It's like, what's a good marriage? 50-50? No, 100-100. No, I mean of taking care of yourself. The flip side, no, 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 taking care of yourself. You want to take care of yourself? Take care of the community. That's the best way to take care of yourself. So it's a the, flip so, the flip side of the point is, what's a healthy community? What's the definition of a healthy community? <laughs> Just like a healthy individual is one where he or she puts aside his or her own self-concern and lives for the sake of the clow of the community. A healthy clow, a healthy community is one that puts aside its collective concern and focuses on the individual welfare of each member of the community. What's the illustration of this? There's a halachic case. The Rambam, in Hilchas Yisei talks about a case where a group of Jews are besieged and hostile Gentiles say, Tnu lonu echad give us one of you hand over one of you and we'll let you live. Now, rationally, logically, human common sense would dictate, well, you know what? The greater good dictates you hand over the individual and you save everybody else. What if there's a hundred people, a thousand people, ten thousand people? You give over one person and you save more people. That's what human logic would dictate. Torah logic, which is divine logic, says no. You don't give over one individual. And unfortunately, this case. Is not just a theoretical construct depicted on the pages of the Rambam. Unfortunately, there are too many cases in history to count where this was the fate of a Jewish community. Torah tells us that the community sacrifices itself for the individual. Okay. So that's an example of dying for Judaism. Let me give you an example, a little bit more of an upbeat example, an example of living for Judaism. I have a friend, I can't be too specific when I describe the scenario here, who is a shliach in a European city. That's as specific as I can get he told me that he was at an event that and he was at an event where a particular philanthropist uh, a communal leader within european jewelry was being honored and they got to talking this shliach got to talking with this philanthropist who uh, has Again, I don't want to get too specific, but he... Okay, I could say, he, he, he built a school in his city. He built a very big school in his city. They got to talking, and the shliach asked the philanthropist, you know, how did you get started in this? Because he wasn't still isn't such a religious guy. He hadn't been involved in Jewish causes before. He, he gave to other things. <coughs> but this thing, back in the late 80s, he started getting into Jewish education. He built a school, actually built a few schools, a network of schools. So the Shaliyah asks him, what's the story? How did he get into it? So he says, in the late 80s, I hired a firm, a research firm, to accumulate data about the Jewish community in this city and to a non-Jewish firm to scientifically analyze the findings and come back to me and tell me what is going to be, what's the projected fate of this Jewish community. So they accumulated data and they came back and they said, That within 20 years there will be no Jewish community. Okay. So he asked them, okay, now could you analyze what would change that? So they came back to him and they said, a school. So they said, okay, very good. And he said, I built the school. That's that's why I built the school. So the Shliach says to the philanthropist, he says, I hear that, that's great. That's it really is that really is great. But let me ask you a question. Why did you need to have that whole study before you came to the conclusion that you needed to make a school? Before you had that study done, you knew about Jewish children in this city who weren't getting a Jewish education. What about those Jewish children you knew about who weren't getting a Jewish education? Why wasn't that the impetus? You hear the difference? Rebbe once spoke about this at the Kinnas Hashlochen, the convention of emissaries. And, and Rebbe spoke about two types of leaders. One, he, he has an institution that he runs. And because he has this institution, he needs neshamas. Now, some of them are payers, and some of them are prayers. You know, but the payers and the prayers, right? The payers write the checks, and the prayers are the ones who show up and eat herring at this. But you've got to have both. I mean, you've got to have bodies in the seats. And you got to have people write the checks. And then once in a while, you even have a person who actually comes to Minyan and gives money, right? Sometimes you have both. But you got to have people. you got to have people. So you have this institution, whether it's a school or it's a, a shul, whatever it is, now you got to get people. The other type of leader comes to a community and he looks at the neshamas. These are the souls that are here. What do they need? What are their needs? If they need a school, we'll make a school. If they need a synagogue, we'll make a synagogue. If they need a mikveh, we'll make a mikveh. If they need a free loan society, we'll make a free loan society. Look at the neshamas, and then you create whatever programming that they require. Very few, if any, institutions are begun with cynical intentions. Most institutions are created because somebody saw a need, right? They looked around and they saw what people needed and they created that institution in order to cater to the needs of individuals. That's how most institutions start. But something happens, unfortunately, in the lifetime, doesn't always, but very common, that in the lifetime of an institution, when does an institution become stagnant? When does an institution lose its soul? Need money. Needing money? No, that's okay. Needing money is okay. Money's not a dirty word. When it stops the individuals. When it stops being for the individuals, which is another way of saying, another way of saying that the institution exists for its own self-perpetuation. That the institution exists in order to exist. That the school is there in order to continue being a school. And, and, and in order to continue being a school, we're going to need parents, we're going to need students, we're going to need supporters. But we have a school, and in order to have that school, we're going to need these different people called students and parents and supporters. It's not how it started. 99 out of 100 times is not how it started. Maybe even never is how it started. I mean, it... it, it. But it often becomes that way, that the institution exists for its own self-perpetuation. That is just as dysfunctional as an individual, as a person who lives for their own self-perpetuation, as a person who says, I'm here for me. So just like we know, that's not healthy when a person says, I'm here for me, for myself. No, you want to be a healthy individual, Live for a cause greater than yourself. How does an individual live for a greater cause? By transcending his or her personal concerns and looking after the clown, looking after the community, the group. How does a community or a group stay healthy and, and, and transcend itself? By looking after the needs of individuals. So the minute that the school becomes for the sake of perpetuating the school, not worrying about this kid who's sitting at home and doesn't have a place to learn. The, the institution becomes stagnant, dysfunctional. It loses its soul. It becomes out of touch with the purpose for which it was originally started. And, and inevitably, without real leadership, this happens, the, 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 the inertia is that inevitably, without real leadership, keeping things moving along in a selfless direction? This happens to almost every institution. Think about it like this Does a minion exist for the ten Jews, or do the ten Jews exist for the minion? There's two different ways of looking at it. Well, you know, talk about a new shul, a brand new shul talk about a shliach who comes to a small town, and he's renting a storefront. And it's Rosh Hashanah, and he has nine people at Yishtabach. And when guy number 10, when that precious tzentim, walks through the door, they could practically pick him up on their shoulders and march him around the room like he just threw the game-winning touchdown pass in the Super Bowl, right? But what happens when that same guy walks into shul, and he's guy 110, and he doesn't get the ticker tape parade reception? Maybe even he walks in and he's ignored. Or worse, maybe even guy number 110 who wanders in right before Yishtabach, somebody says to him, hey, that's my seat. What happened to the hero's welcome that he got when he was guy number 10? What, so he walked in the room 10 years too late? If he would have walked in when the shul was still struggling for a minion, he'd be a hero, but now he walked in when you're farther along in your growth, and now he's, now he's, a, he's a nutnik? He's a liability? If the shul exists... For the Mispalalim, or the Mispalim exists for the Shul. If the Minion exists for the 10 Jews, or the 10 Jews exist for the Minion. Okay? If you need Jews for the Minion, then once I got 10, I'm good. Okay, 11 for insurance. Okay, 11 looks a little bit nebby. Let's get 20, fill it out, but now we're solid. We're good. But if the Minion is there for the Jews, then even if I have 100 people in shul, even if I have 200 people in shul, and I'm the leader, I should be standing out front of the shul looking for that extra Jew, there's no extra Jew, looking for one more Jew, the same with the same urgency as I would be if we only had nine people. So there's 200 people, but if dominion is for the Jews, then I'm standing outside, sir, you're Jewish, you need a place to pray. Come, take my talis, take my prayer book, take my seat. When an institution uses individuals for its own perpetuation, that's when an individual—that's when the institution becomes sick. Just like an individual that lives only for itself. So again, let me just make sure that the formulation is very clear. We're not talking about a balance between individual and community, not a balance. What we're talking about is a healthy individual has to live for the community. If you live for yourself, you're not well. The flip side of the coin is a healthy community is there to serve individuals. Once the community is there in order, once the community becomes, I guess the word is institutionalized, becomes an institution, it's there because it's there, everybody knows that feeling of being used, that feeling of the institution is no longer serving me. It, not here because its charter is my welfare, or my children's welfare. The institution is there for itself. And that's when people start to, to, to run away from institutions, and then eventually they die. So what's the solution? The solution is very obvious. The solution is very obvious. A healthy individual has to look beyond his or her own self-concern and ask how can I serve the community. A healthy community has to look beyond its self-concern as an institution, as a group, as as an entity and say, Even if we were, in theory, even if in theory, we were to have to sacrifice the common welfare, the greater good, for the sake of an individual, we would do so. And the irony is, the beautiful irony, it's a good irony, is the community that's willing to do that doesn't end up being sacrificed, it doesn't end up losing, it's not a deficit or a detriment to that that group. That is the healthiest group, the most thriving, most living group is the one that is that zealous for the good of the individual.